0: Happy Easter. Thank you guys for being here. The longstanding tradition um, among many Christians on this day is to greet each other like this, right? To say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. Yeah. If you're new to this, like that's what everybody said is the traditional reply. They say, he is risen indeed. Um, I don't know if before this moment anybody said that to you or not today, but that's that's how the greeting goes. Now, I'm not sure when this tradition started. I think it's safe to say a long time ago. Um, I'm also not sure what its initial purpose was within the church, whether it was a teaching tool or a simple way to include each other in the celebration of Easter or perhaps some defense against heresy, but I know why I like it, why I like this tradition and why I look forward to it each year personally. And it's because, because it keeps the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? The main thing is that Jesus Christ, a man who on a Friday died by crucifixion 2,000 years ago on Sunday ceased to be dead anymore. He ceases to be dead still. Indeed, he's risen. Now you'd think it'd be pretty easy for the people who follow after that guy um, and who have done so for 2,000 years now think it'd be pretty easy for us to stay centered on this belief, on this main thing without needing a reminder each year. But the truth is, of course, that's not the case. We do now and we always have struggled to keep the main thing, the main thing. Even though this main thing, this resurrection of Jesus is the very act that answers, I would contend, the biggest question that human beings have ever had about the world, which is this, Is this all there is? Is this all there is? And the resurrection, if it happened, is definitive proof that the answer to that question is no. That death isn't the end. That there is a God and that that God is capable of extending our relationship with him into eternity. In other words, If this happened, the fact that he is risen means that rising is possible. That's the biggest news there's ever been. So what in the world distracts us from keeping the main thing, the main thing all the time? Well, I think the ins and the outs do, right? Who gets to rise and under what circumstances they get to do so. We get distracted by our frustrations with God's patience with this world that we're in which we experience in the waiting for the things that are broken to be made right and whole. We get distracted by, well, our need to want just a little bit more information about the stuff that God's up to before we're quite ready to settle into his footsteps. And then, of course, even when we do, as a lot of you in this room know, even when we do decide to follow after this guy, we can be inconstant. Ourselves, We can be in on our faith one day and out on another, which is of course all just a way of saying that things would be a lot easier for us, right? If all we ever had to wrestle with was that Easter greeting. You say he's risen. I say he is risen indeed. And then the matter's settled and the main thing's the main thing and there are no take backs. But my life hasn't worked out that way I would wager that yours probably hasn't worked out that way either. Now, this past weekend, what seems like forever ago, the NCAA men's basketball tournament ended. Now, I want to say I don't care. That's from the start. I don't care much about basketball in general, but I do like to fill out a bracket every year because it's fun right? Lately I've been just doing this through the ESPN app, so I'm like joining the 20 million other people in the world who do it. I, I haven't been like doing any office pools or putting any money on the line, mostly because I'm the only person who works in my office, so I, I guess I could gamble with myself, but I would win. So. The point is I use the app and I just join the rest of America in this contest. And every year I do two brackets. One where I pick the people that I think I'm gonna the teams that I think are going to win, and another where I legitimately just flip a coin um, and see how it all goes. And I gotta ask you, which bracket do you think does better? <laughs> That's right, yes. The coin flip. In fact, my coin flip bracket this past year picked UConn to win it all. And so as a result of that coin flip bracket, I finished in the top 99% of the millions. I won $0 dollars for all this, <laughs> but I did it. Anyway, here's something that surprised me this past year as I was going through this. Like I filled out my bracket, I was tracking the scores. And then I don't know if you were doing this too, but that very next weekend, I got all these alerts on my phone because ESPN was offering me a second chance bracket. And I was like, I've never seen this before, but I'm onto your racket. I'm onto your gamble here because here's the thing seeing my mistakes, they were giving me a chance to try again. But I got to tell you that even if I had done that, if I had tried again, I still don't think I would have beaten that coin flip. Now, like, where are we going with all this? I know it's easy, I heard this several times this week. It's Easter, Kenny, be short and be cheerful. (laughs) I was like, these are not strengths of mine ever. (laughs) Now, Where we're going with this is is here. This week, in addition to celebrating Easter, we're also wrapping up the first half of our study on Luke's gospel this year. We're gonna pick up the second half of Luke's gospel with chapter 10 in October. And since we're covering that first half, I, I imagine it's not gonna surprise you to learn that the Easter story isn't in there. The Easter story doesn't happen in the first half of Luke's gospel. But here's something that is in the first half of Luke's gospel, specifically chapter nine. Jesus said to them all, the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, I'm sorry, and be killed and then on the third day be raised. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, the section heading in your Bible, if you've got a paper Bible in front of you, the section heading in your Bible is gonna tell you that this is where, quote, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. And if you skim through Luke in your Bible, you're gonna see that Jesus actually does this a bunch of times. Turns out that resurrecting thing is the main thing for him. But spoiler warning to you if you've never read the Bible before, when you get to the actual event of the crucifixion in Luke 23, literally none, not one, of his disciples either expect Jesus to die or anticipate his return, not one. Well, how could they, you might say in their defense, if you're in a gracious mood towards the disciples this morning, such an incredible thing for anybody to believe. That's fair, that's fair, but It's also worth pointing out that just after those verses, I read a moment ago, Jesus takes three of his disciples to the top of a mountain. And when they get there, he summons the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and then he reveals himself to these humans in his full glory. It's an event called the transfiguration, And it's the only moment in the gospel stories where anybody is permitted to see Jesus as Jesus really and truly is. And it is in every possible sense of the word a miracle. And then right after he reveals himself to these guys, he goes back down the mountain, joins his other disciples, casts a demon out of somebody who by the way says he's God. And then he looks to his disciples and he says this, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand this saying. Its meaning remained concealed from them, so they could not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Do you know what happens in the very next verse of Luke's Gospel? Here it is An argument arose among the disciples concerning which one of them was the greatest. This is relatable content. Here's here's where we're going. Today, we're here because we want to celebrate who we as Christians believe Jesus to be. We want to celebrate what we believe Jesus has done for us. And that's all well and good. We're here to keep the main thing, the main thing. But in a nutshell, this is what I want us to challenge us about this morning. It's this. We need to remember who we are as we do all of that. We need to remember who we are. Because if we don't remember who we are, we're going to get distracted. So who are you and who am I? We're bad guessers, that's who we are. Like I said a moment ago, I didn't fill out that second chance bracket for ESPN and it wouldn't have mattered if I did because I still wouldn't have picked UConn to win the championship. And I don't want to force the theological point here, but knowing the stuff God is going to do turns out to be harder than anticipating a title run for a number four seat. In the passage that we looked at a moment ago, Jesus tells his disciples that, quote, if any wish to come after me, which I hope we all do, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so I think if our goal is to keep the main thing, the main thing, we need to take this specific passage seriously. I think it's how we keep the main thing, the main thing. But what does it mean to deny ourselves? What does it mean to take up our cross daily? And how in the world can we know the answers to those questions without making some untrustworthy guesses? Let's back up a little bit. What's going on in Luke nine in the first place? Here's what's happening. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls the 12 disciples together. It says he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. And wherever you do not, I'm sorry, wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they, the disciples, departed and went to the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. So here's what's going on. Jesus has gotten his followers in on his work. He's delegated, right, as all the corporate consultants encourage us to do all the time. And that delegation is working, it's proving to be effective. The Jesus go, they do what Jesus has said, and as a result, these miracles are getting performed all over the place. And then after some period of time where they've been traveling around doing Jesus stuff, they all return to Jesus and they tell him about what's been happening. And it seems in these passages that their understanding of what's going on, of like the big picture in Jesus's ministry right now, is that Jesus is in this stage where he's expanding the movement. He's having them travel. He's he's multiplied his leadership here so that he can reach more people, so they can expand this movement that they've started, right? And that in doing that, they're growing this revolution we've been talking about for the last few weeks, as Jesus is getting ready to go to Jerusalem and to do the big Messiah thing everybody's expecting him to do, which is to restore Israel to the Israelites. So these disciples feel lucky No wonder they're wondering who's the greatest among them, right? Because they've been chosen to work these miracles so that they convince more people that Jesus is for real. That's how they understand their job. It's exciting and it's empowering work to go around doing all that. But when they get back to where Jesus is, he takes them away from from where they gathered and he takes them into this desert place. And when they go, these crowds all kind of follow and Jesus sort of pauses his like, leadership retreat thing he's doing with the disciples so he can teach these crowds. And then it gets late in the day and as evening approaches, this happens. The 12 come to Jesus and they say, send the crowds away so they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, these disciples, these same ones that just traveled around doing all these miracles, look at Jesus incredulously. And they say, we can't do that. You've given us disease curing powers. You've given us word spreading powers. You haven't given us feeding powers. But Jesus insists that they try. And then you know how the story goes. The crowds end up being miraculously fed. As I was thinking about that story this week, what I got hung up on was this. Why don't the disciples know that they can do this? Why don't they know? And my theory is that they miss it because feeding the people isn't what they are expecting Jesus's next move to be. They're expecting him to gather his crew that they've been recruiting and go to Jerusalem. Feeding people to them is a distraction from the big job. And so, Jesus corrects their expectations. And after he corrects their expectations, we can ask the follow-up question, which is, then why are they able to do it then? And I think the answer must be because even though they don't know what he's doing, they follow his instructions anyways. Now, these middle chapters of Luke are full of this same scenario repeating itself over and over and over again. The disciples think they know the stuff that Jesus is gonna do and then he frustrates them and then he gives them a second chance and then they follow him regardless. And I think the point of all of this is that the disciples are revealing themselves, even though they're best friends with the actual Jesus, they're revealing themselves as bad guessers. But the cool thing that's happening here is that even though they keep making these bad guesses, they're learning this about themselves. They're learning how to be better followers. And the thing here is that as we said at the beginning, it's not like it's ever unclear what Jesus is up to. He's perfectly clear, but it turns out, I think when we look at this example, that denying ourselves is a matter of following where Jesus actually leads, instead, of narrowing our vision down to only the stuff that we're expecting him to do. Now, here's the thing, you and I are not better guessers than the disciples were. You and I get God wrong all the time. And sometimes it has to do with what we expect him to do in our own lives. And other times it has to do with what we expect him to do in our world or has to do with what we expect him to do in our church. But denying ourselves isn't only a matter of turning away from the sin and the mistakes we make. It's not just about cutting out bad habits and reading our Bible more. It is also about letting go of needing to be the ones who know. Of letting go of needing to be the ones who know. Now, perhaps silly illustration because I got heavy for a minute. I use my serious voice, which my kids have just told me is a scary voice, Um, so we need a joke. So here's the joke. One of the problems with the rise of GPS services like Google Maps in our lives is that I think most of us have gotten very bad at following people. Have you noticed this? Any of you old enough to remember when you would say, like, follow me to this place and expect a person to get behind you and follow you? Nobody does that anymore. What they do instead is they just say, like, just give me the address. Right? Now, here's the thing about Jesus. He is the address. It is him. Actually walking in the way that he walks, following him is the point. And you can't follow somebody very well, as we've all learned, if you're only focused on the destination. Now, this is, of course, a mistake because, as we said at the beginning, you're a bad guesser. And I know that because I was in the top 99% of the brackets, right? (laughs) You weren't, so. But what if we didn't need to be guessers at all? When somebody says he is risen on Easter morning, the response isn't, and I'm gonna rise too. Although (laughs) you could try it, it's a little strange. Even though that is of course what we believe, that's why we're here. It's because Jesus rose and we believe that that's going to pass over to us. It's going to pass to everybody that follows after him. That's the good news. So it makes sense to say it, but we don't say it. We don't say I'm going to rise too. The response is he is risen indeed because we're here every year on this morning to try and keep the main thing, the main thing. And denying ourselves is this day in and day out process of choosing to put our whole trust in the example of Jesus's life, of his actual life. Now, Jesus's actual life is going to lead us to all sorts of places, and a lot of them are places we don't want to go. It's going to lead us into the lives of people with whom we're uncomfortable, into the houses of sinners. It's going to lead us into crowds of people who have needs, many of which we have no idea how we could ever help to meet. That's true that Jesus promises that one day that road that he's leading us down is gonna lead us into eternity. But it is also true that Jesus's way to that place is one that takes this side stop you might have remembered at the cross. And that's a major detour. And it makes sense to me, makes all the sense in the world to try and bypass it because who wants to choose to suffer if you don't have to? but I think part of the thing we're up to as a church is to say that we can't allow ourselves and we can't allow each other to rationalize our way out of what we're really here to do, which is to walk in those footsteps of Jesus together. And we can stop guessing about that because the way he sets for us is plenty clear, but it is also hard and it's also costly. So when does following Jesus get tough? Well, it gets tough when you have to choose to stay in relationship with somebody that you deeply disagree with. It gets tough when you help somebody out of a pit and then they just jump right back into it. It gets tough when you realize that you need to give something away that you hold incredibly dear to you. But the encouragement this morning when you're in tough places is simply this, I'm pausing for dramatic effect because it's such a serious point. The encouragement is you weren't going to pick Yukon anyways. <laughs> so stay humble, deny yourself and keep following Jesus even to the cross. Now that's the first big point this morning. Remember who you are. Remember that you're a bad guesser. And the good news is that you don't have to be. You just need encouragement and the companionship to do the hard things like loving each other when it's painful to do so. And Easter isn't a hard day, right? Everybody's mostly happy to be here. But next Sunday, next Sunday's harder. And heck, tomorrow's harder when it comes to loving people. But you can do it. You can be a radical a person of radical and contagious love, which is what I hope we all wanna be, if we can center ourselves on this question and this question only this week. What does Jesus want to change? What does Jesus want to change? Maybe it's something in you, right? Can you face it? Can you share that conviction with somebody who will check in on you? Or maybe it's something in your neighborhood with somebody else, right? Can you really care? Can you take the time? The other week, my neighbor's son who walks to middle school every day was just leaving his house when I pulled into the parking lot after dropping off my girls at their middle school. Now, that means he's late. That's what that all means. It means that he was definitively late to school now, during my work days, I've got about four and a half hours to do eight hours of work and I didn't have time for him. And I knew I didn't have time for him, which is why I walked right past him. I made it almost to my front door before I turned around and was like, ah, because you've been there. like, ah. So I went back and I was like, hey, Logan, you want a ride to school? Hoping he'd say no, that he was like, I don't care, I'm late, I don't like school. And then he'd walk and be late. But he was like, okay, I'll take a ride. And so, So I did, I gave him a ride to school. Yay, me. (laughs) No, no, I did something, but I didn't do enough. What would have been enough? Well, I could have told his mom that I actually have time to do this every day, right? I could have reminded him that we miss him because he used to be a close friend to Cecilia and Graham but he just doesn't really come much around anymore at our house. Heck, literally right before I came home and when I was dropping the girls off, I stopped and bought them donuts. Like I could have bought him a donut. He was late anyways. (laughs) I didn't do that. I didn't do any of those things. There was room to be a better neighbor than the neighbor that I chose to be. And I would contend that whatever you're up to, there is room for you to be better too. Maybe Easter is the day that we remember that a risen savior is also a savior who's telling us to stop worrying so much about time. He's got plenty. Will I follow his example even when it's hard? Here's the, the second and the final point this morning. We need to remember who we are and we're bad guessers. We also need to remember who we are and we are the unfathomably beloved children of God. The unfathomably beloved children of God. You and the ESPN app want to talk about second chances. Here's the thing, right? Jesus gives them to his disciples endlessly. Why does he do that? He does that because he knows the secret and the secret is this, we are more likely to do the right things when they flow out of feeling loved than, when, than we are to do the right things when we think feeling loved is the reward we're gonna get for doing them. <laughs> that was a very complicated sentence and I stumbled in the middle. So let's make it personal. Is it easier for you to be kind to your spouse when you feel secure in their love or is it easier when you feel insecure? How many times in your life have you gotten those things backwards? Where you've tried to be so good to somebody else that they will start to care. Isn't that exhausting? Isn't that awful? We need to follow in Jesus's footsteps, yes. We need to put down the guesswork and take our eyes off of eternity for just a second and just do the sorts of stuff that he does. But let me be real clear about this thing being a better Christian isn't going to make God love you more, but believing and feeling how much God loves you will make you a better Christian. And so the question is, what's the sign of that love? What's the proof when you're doubting it? Well, the proof is that there are footsteps to follow. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John's gospel and not Luke's, but what does it say? It says that Jesus is here in the first place, not because he's mad at you, but because God loves you. And the thing that Jesus does is he leads us into real and right and everlasting life. And what does that life that Jesus is here to give us, what does it require? It requires belief. Now, people in my line of work talk all the time about believing in Jesus. And what do you think that means? I think we often take it to mean, people like me often say that it means, thinking the stuff the Bible says about Jesus is true. That's how we understand what it means to believe about Jesus. Do you think that stuff is true? And that's, A part of it, that's fair. But it's also this. Believe that God loves you enough to make a way for you, even you. He loves you enough to give you an example to follow in the first place. He loves you enough to give you chance after chance after chance to do it. And he loves you enough to forgive all of your bad guesses because he knows that you're a bad guesser. And believing in Jesus can also mean believing all of that, believing that that's what's happening. Luke 9, 23 through 24 again says this, Jesus said to them all, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me for those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. I've spent my whole life thinking that those verses are a test that I'm supposed to pass. This week, I am discovering that what's being described here is an act of love. I want you to live well, God is saying. I want this for you. So let your guard down. Don't be afraid of me and follow. Even if you're scared of the places it's gonna lead. Now tomorrow, it's gonna be hard to keep the main thing, the main thing. It's going to be easy to go back to just guessing the stuff God wants. The way Jesus sets requires giving away time and it requires giving away attention and it requires giving away resources. But what I'm trying to get to here at the end today is that the existence of that way, no matter how hard it may seem, the existence of that way is evidence of how special you are to God. Denying ourselves doesn't mean making ourselves nothing. It means seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. So remember who you are this Easter. You are God's beloved. You are precious enough to die for and you are loved enough to rise for. All so that you just might believe And the proof of that affection is in the God who comes here and the God who lives still. The main thing is that Jesus is still here, which is why when I say he is risen, you say, I'll pray for us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us enough to show us a way to be who you have made us to be, to be people. God, thank you for forgiving our bad guesses, for having mercy on us as we flounder around sometimes trying to figure out what it is that you want. And thank you for this pattern in the tradition of our church here this morning to on a once a year to gather together and try to remember what the main thing is. And the main thing is that you came here, you died, and you rose. You're the main thing. Your love for us and your commitment to making a way for us. Help us to remember that. Help us to follow that this year.